How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everybody the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study the word and focus and get rid of all those uh, things in your head that distract you and get your attention off of uh, the word this evening, the things that are going to happen tomorrow, the things that happened this morning, things that should have happened, would have happened, could have happened, you wanted to happen, but didn't happen. And we'll just focus on the word, and that just cleans out everything. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, you have given us everything related to life and the spiritual life. You have given us a sufficient revelation that is uh, incorporated in the canon of Scripture. You have given us sufficient grace. We have all that we need, more than we need, to know you, to live out our lives in dependence upon you, and to know how to think about everything in life from your viewpoint. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Revelation, help us to remember that as we study the future and we orient to the history of the future or prophecy, that what this does is helps us to anchor our thinking in the present. Because as we come to a sure and certain knowledge of the future, it helps us to understand the whys and the wherefores of the circumstances today that we may have a more uh, sure and certain confident expectation, a hope that anchors our soul. And we pray that as we study your word tonight that these things will be clear to us that we study and that we might be strengthened by God the Holy Spirit as we study these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Revelation 11. Revelation chapter 11. And we're at a transition point beginning in verse 15. Now, let's just run through a couple of familiar charts to orient our thinking to where we are. Those of you who may have tuned in to live streaming and were on vacation for spring break the last week or two, uh, we switched Sunday morning Revelation and the First Kings study on Tuesday night. So the Kings is now on Sunday morning. Revelation is on Tuesday night, so you're not lost. We're continuing our study in Revelation. Now, this lays out the uh, chart, diagram of the events in the, in the tribulation. The tribulation is a seven-year period, also referred to as Daniel's 70th week, a seven-year period that is clearly laid out in Daniel chapter 9. The midpoint of the tribulation is an event known as the abomination of desolation when the uh, evil world ruler during the tribulation period known as the Antichrist or the uh, first beast in Revelation as he'll become known will desecrate the temple, a rebuilt temple that will be in Jerusalem. 
And when he desecrates that temple, that is a sign, according to what Jesus told uh, his disciples in Matthew 24, for the believing Jews in Jerusalem to flee, to leave, because things are going to go from bad to worse, from crisis to catastrophe in the second half of the tribulation period. And so there is this, this rough schematic that, of, of, of chronology of the seven seal judgments. The seventh seal judgment is opened, revealing seven trumpet judgments. When the seventh trumpet blows, which is our passage tonight, reveals within it seven bowl judgments or vile judgments, as that's V-I-A-L, not V-I-L-E. Vile judgments, uh, as it was translated in the King James Version, they are vile, vile judgments. Just want to see if anybody was awake tonight. But what happens is you have the blowing of the trumpet revealing these judgments in chapter 15, but the actual carrying out of these sealed judgments doesn't, uh, isn't described until uh, three chapters later, until we get into chapter 17, uh, excuse me, chapter 15. So we're going to go through chapter uh, 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, and these chapters play a distinct role within the unfolding of this, these judgments. Now, what we've seen before, moving to the next slide, is that we have the rapture of the church, which isn't explicitly identified in the book of Revelation, but it's implied in Revelation 4.1 when John sees a door open in heaven and he's called to come up. And then we have the heavenly scene, uh, the throne room in Revelation 4 and 5, which really should have been one chapter where you have the uh, four living creatures and the 24 elders uh, and angels before the throne of God in that chapter. And that is a prelude to what then happens because the the key event there is this uh, seven-sealed scroll that is laying in the hand, open hand of God the Father on the throne. They're looking for someone who's worthy to open that scroll. The lamb is discovered. He's the only one worthy to open the scroll, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth, the lamb who was slain for our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is John's favorite title for the Lord in the book of Revelation. And he begins to open those seals, and each one uh, represents a different judgment. These occur, I believe, during the first half of the first part of the first half of the first half of the tribulation, or roughly the first 21 to 24 uh, months. When the seventh trumpet judgment, uh, when the seventh seal judgment is open, it reveals these seven trumpet judgments. Again, there's this interlude that occurs between chapter uh, chapter six and chapter seven, and then. Uh, we have, uh, I mean, excuse me, between chapter 6 and chapter 8, and then uh, chapter nine, uh, 8 and 9 describe the trumpet judgments, and then we have another interlude in chapter 10. So there's this constant movement that's going on uh, back and forth between a heavenly scene and an earthly scene. We saw the trumpet judgments and how they become uh, increasingly more severe than the seal judgments. And, in fact, the last... Uh, two of the trumpet judgments are identified as woe judgments, and they involve a demonic judgment upon the earth. So uh, the, the, it's the, it indicates the release 
of certain demonic armies to wreak havoc upon uh, the human race. The thing to understand is we go back and forth with these uh, scenes, that chapter 4 and 5 are in heaven, chapter 6 is on the earth, chapter 7 takes us back to heaven again, and the time frame of chapter uh, chapter 7, which is the sealing of the 144,000, this occurs at the same time as chapter 6. Then we go through chapters 8 and 9 on the earth. Chapter 10 begins with John uh, seeing the mighty angel who has a little book in his hand. And this little book, as we studied, is really a sub-revelation, a secondary revelation of other judgments that are taking place during this same period of time. So chapter 10 is heavenly, chapters, chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, John's back on the earth measuring the temple, and we studied that the last two or three lessons, and we have the uh, two witnesses on the earth. The two witnesses operate during the first half of the tribulation period, as we have seen. And then uh, beginning in 11.15, not 11.14, that's a typo, beginning in 11.15 to 19, we shift back to a heavenly scene that looks forward to the second half and overlooks the second half of the tribulation period. Now, to remind you of what's happening in these little book prophecies, the focus is on Israel, number one. The focus in these chapters, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, has to do with Israel and what is happening in different areas during the tribulation period, ultimately with relationship to Israel. So from the writer's perspective, he's gone through the first half in terms of the judgment structure. Now he's going to go back and bring us up to date with things that are other things that are going on during the uh, tribulation period, during the time of the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. So we're told that during the first half there will be these two witnesses who have a specific role in relation to Israel and the remnant. The real fruit of their ministry, as we saw last time, doesn't take place until after they are martyred and after their dead bodies are on view for three days, and then they are resurrected and they ascend to heaven. And we saw in verse 13 of chapter 11, in the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. That's a tenth of Jerusalem. This is a large, large city. A tenth of the city fell, and in the earthquake 7,000 people are killed. It seems to me that's a small number in relation to the size of of Jerusalem. 7,000 people are killed, and the rest were afraid and gave give glory to the God of heaven. That is a statement that is soteriological. This, this is the salvation of the uh, vast majority of Jews living in the land at that time, and it is, I believe, and we'll see this when we get into chapter 12 and 13, that it's at about this time, after the ascension of the of the two witnesses, that the Antichrist will desecrate the temple. Up to this point, God has protected the inner part of the temple. That's what we saw in verses 1 and 2. And now the Antichrist is going to desecrate even the Holy of Holies, and he is going to take control. I believe that it's compared to the first half of the tribulation, virtually no one is going to be responsive to the gospel during the second half. It is a spiritually dark period. Now, 
that's just an opinion from, because of the way I'm looking at a number of passages. So the majority of people who are going to respond will respond during the first half, but it's in the second half that we'll see the mark of the beast and all of these other things that will, that will take place. So we have the two witnesses in chapter 12. It focuses on the remnant of Israel giving the history there. Uh, as Israel is the pictured as the woman who is, gives birth to the son, uh, and her son, that son is the one who's destined to rule with a rod of iron. Psalm 2, that's the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the end of chapter 12, she is pursued by the dragon who is Satan and flees into the wilderness. So that takes us up to just past the what we saw in 1113, the salvation of a vast number of Jews in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 13, the focus is on the dragon and the beasts and the earth dwellers, and it becomes very dark and ominous at this time. And this focuses on the first beast and the second beast and the mark of the beast and the, the everything that goes on during that period of time. And then there continues to be, though, the outreach of God's grace. And there are three angels that are sent to go fly through the heavens and to announce the gospel to people, to warn them. But the response is hostility. But we see the grace of God in that he continues to pursue and pursue and to offer the gospel. But what's left are just the hardened, hardened earth dwellers. But there's just a massive massive uh, slaughter of believers that occurs during this second half of the, of the uh, tribulation period. Now we come to Revelation 11.15, and we read, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now, when you look at this verse, if you've got a King James or a New King James, it reads the kingdoms of this world, because that is the alternate reading that's in the manuscripts on which the King James uh, Version was based, known as the Textus Receptus. And the TR was just based on a limited number of Greek manuscripts that were available in the 16th and 17th century. But we've discovered so many more since then. Uh, many of them are within, uh, textual scholars classify these manuscripts in family groups because of their characteristics. And so the Textus Receptus is part of a larger family group that's called the Byzantine text or the majority text. And the TR is just a minor uh, representation. It, it actually, the oldest Greek manuscript in the TR was about the 9th century A.D. So it's, it's not a good witness to original documents or older documents. The majority text and the critical text agree here that this is singular. It's speaking of the kingdom of the world because this is the kingdom of Satan. The world is the outer expression of Satan's rulership as the prince and the power of the air, as the god of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And it is in the tribulation that God is finally going to bring human history to a close and to bring judgment upon all of these rebellious groups, whether they are 
human or angelic. And so everything comes to a head in this last half of the tribulation. That's why I believe that during the last half of the tribulation, both uh, demons and angels will be visible to human beings. And there will, there, we see, we'll see in uh, chapter 13 that the, a third of the angels or the demons are cast out of heaven with Satan and cast down to the earth. And I believe that it's at that point that they become visible on the earth. So it's going to be a, a rather bizarre time, but it all leads to this final uh, battle, this campaign of Armageddon, during which time the Lord Jesus Christ will completely finish off his enemies, both human and uh, demonic. So that's what they're looking at here. Uh, when it comes to this. Now, the seventh angel sounds and blows the, the seventh trumpet, which is the last of the trumpet judgments. And there are some who come along and say, well, this last trumpet, this is the trumpet that's mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. There, Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That's the motto of every church nursery. Yeah, it took you a little while to catch that. Mystery is a previously unrevealed truth. And so what he is revealing is the rapture at this point. This isn't a second coming verse. This is a rapture verse. He says, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, which is about one sixty-fourth of a second at the last trumpet. So when the last trumpet is blown that he's speaking of here, this is not... The, the series of judgments that come out of the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11, because that last trumpet, the last of the seven trumpet judgments, incorporates the seven bowl judgments. And that's going to take approximately three to three and a half years to unfold. So the last trumpet mentioned in verse 52 of 1 Corinthians 15 is referring to the Last trump, meaning the last event in the present church age. And it is an instantaneous event that occurs when the trumpet blows and the Lord Jesus Christ will shout and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 15. So this is the reference here in 1 Corinthians 15. This isn't the uh, last trumpet of the trumpet judgment. So we don't have a mid-tribulation or a pre-wrath rapture or any of those variant views. This 1 Corinthians 15 has nothing to do with the trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation. Now there's another interesting facet that occurs here. And that has to do with the Greek tenses of the verbs, because this is taking place some three and a half years prior to the end of the tribulation period. So the kingdom isn't coming yet, but it is spoken of in the past tense. The seventh angel sounded, and there were, and there's a past tense, an aorist, uh, aorist indicative there, which the aorist just summarizes the action. It doesn't have any reference to its continuation, its length, or progression, 
There were loud voices in heaven saying, and then he uses the same verb again, egoneto, which has the idea of something coming into being that didn't exist before, so it was silent. Then the trumpet, seventh trumpet blasted, and then you, all of a sudden there's these loud voices, there's this, this uh, commotion, because there's a realization of what this portends. Finally, finally, after centuries, millennia of rebellion and evil and the sin and the horrors of sin in both angelic history and human history, finally it is going to be brought to a conclusion. It's going to come to an end. The kingdom of this world has become, and again we have an aorist indicative here, has become the kingdom of our Lord. It's a past tense verb, but it hasn't happened yet. But it's so certain to happen in the future that it's spoken of as if it has already occurred. Now, some people might have a little trouble with that. They may try to take a hyper-literalist view to, to the Scripture and say, well, how in the world could you have... Uh, language like this. We find this in both Hebrew and and Greek where there's a use of a past tense to speak of a future event uh, as if it's already occurred because it, it, it's, its occurrence is so certain. So they speak of the kingdom, the destruction of the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world, and the establishment of the kingdom of God and Christ, the mention of the Lord here is the Father. The word Lord, as a matter of fact, in Revelation almost always refers to the Father. Only a few exceptions does it refer to the Son. And here you see the clear distinction, our Lord and of his Christ. So you see that that clear distinction between the Father and the Son. And he will reign forever and ever. So what we see in this event is something that is spoken of a lot in many of the hymns that we sing. And there are times when Christians get a little hyper-literalist about hymns. Now, you all know me, and you know that I try to be picky about hymns that we sing, both in terms of the music and in terms of the words. But we have to remember that a hymn, when you look at the lyrics of a hymn, it's poetry. And there's always a certain literary license and dramatic license that's taken with with poetry. If you look in the Bible, you look and you study uh, the book of Psalms or many other uh, portions of Scripture that are written in poetry, you come to realize that the language that's used in in, in poetry has a certain flexibility to it that it doesn't have in other literature. If you have a word that is used in a law contract, it has a very narrow field of meaning. If you have a word that is used in a theological discussion, an articulation, for example, in Ephesians or Colossians, it's going to have a much narrower range of meaning. But when you're reading it in poetry, it may have a broader nuance because of the use of figurative language within poetry. And if you try to make poetic language fit the, the rigors of legal or epistolary language, then you're going to come up with 
with uh, Shakespearean sonnets that read like IRS instructions. It just isn't going to work. And what happens sometimes is that, and I've heard Christians do, they'll look at some hymn and they'll say, oh, well, that, that, that should be this way or that way. And, and let's, let's, we have to make room for a little literary license. And it also happens with regard to some hymns that focus on the future as if we're not standing here in the middle of the church age, but we are actually with those 24 elders that represent the church that are standing before the throne of God. Now, one of these is the hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Now, we're not singing this as church-age believers that it's now time to crown the Lord Jesus Christ as the uh, millennial king because we know that that's not going to happen until the second coming. He's not on the throne of David in heaven right now. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. But there will come a time when the church united, resurrected, and rewarded, represented by those 24 elders, will be singing a hymn like this. And so it is uh, sung today with that futuristic look. Now, there's a fancy word for that. It's called proleptic. But it's a futuristic orientation that we are singing in anticipation of what we will sing when we call upon the Lamb to be crowned and to return to establish his kingdom. So we sing these kinds of hymns, crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. See, this language comes right out of Revelation. It's premillennial. It's not post-mill or amill. We crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but his own. It's, it, we, we're hearing the writer's meditation on Revelation 4, on Revelation 5, on passages like the one we're looking at in Revelation 11. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. See, that the focal point here is what happens at the return of Christ. And so the other verses do that as well. Crown him the virgin son, the God incarnate born. And, and it's a great meditation on who he is and why he is uh, to be crowned, why he is worthy to be crowned. If you look about halfway down that slide, we see the next verse here. I tried to scrunch him down to get a couple of verses on one slide. Crown him the Son of God before the worlds began, and ye who tread where he hath trod, uh, crown him the Son of Man. Great theology there in blending his eternal title of Son of God and the title he assumes as the, as the Son of Man, who every grief hath known that wrings the human breast and takes and bears them for his own, that all in him may rest. Great meditation on substitutionary atonement. And then on the resurrection, crown him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. So the focus is on the future. And so when we sing this, we're, we're singing it not that we're calling upon a, a, a crowning of the king today, but we're looking forward to that event, putting ourselves in that place, looking with optimism and hope towards that, that future realization of his kingdom when he returns. 
Now, the same thing happens in another hymn that we sing, and this is the hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. I'll, I left out the first letter there. It got scrunched over the side. I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. See, this is taking place at the same time as crown him with many crowns. It's looking forward to that time when he will be crowned, re- receive the kingdom from God as it expressed in Daniel chapter 7, uh, Revelation 19, and he is crowned the Lord of, Lord of all. So uh, think, about, we think about these things. This is perfectly legitimate within the process of literary license and within uh, the poetry and interpretation. These writers often are premillennial. They're not talking about some sort of postmillennial uh, or amillennial orientation. So in this, in, chap- in uh, verse 15 of chapter 11, as the trumpet is sounded, the, the voices in heaven, we're not told which voices, it, it, it could be the, the living creatures, the four living creatures, it could be the, uh, the angelic chorus or the 24 elders, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And the word Christ is the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one, or uh, which is a translation of the Hebrew Mashiach, which also means anointed or appointed one. Uh, an anointed one is not necessarily God, just because it has the word Messiah associated with it. Cyrus was called God's anointed one because God had appointed him to do release the Jews from their uh, their being scattered and exiled in Babylon to go back to establish their homeland. In fact, the angel in Ezekiel 28 is called the anointed cherub who covers. The Mashiach, the anointed cherub who covers. So there is a, and and that's a tantalizing application of the word Mashiach to uh, Lucifer before the fall, but we won't. That's another doctrine and another subject. But what we see here is a doctrine that is taught throughout the scriptures that looks forward to this establishment of the kingdom of God upon the earth. That this is a literal, physical, visible kingdom. And that Jesus Christ will return before that kingdom is established. That is called the premillennial view of prophecy. Pre meaning before, millennium being a term from the Latin milli meaning uh, a thousand. It is a literal thousand year reign based on Revelation chapter 20, the only time that we have a precise number given. And just like all of the other numbers in Revelation, it should be taken literally because all of the other numbers in Revelation are, uh, are, lit, are to be taken literally. There were two witnesses earlier in chapter 11, and that doesn't mean 200 or 2,000 or uh, two churches or any of the other uh, kind of silly interpretations that come along. And so it's, it's clear that the, uh, this kingdom is a literal, physical, earthly kingdom. The, um, the Greek word for a thousand years was kilios. 
C-H-I-L-I-A-S. And so the early, in the early church, it was referred to, our view of premillennialism was referred to as chiliasm. Sometimes you will still uh, find people using that term, especially when they refer to uh, early church fathers. So we're chiliasm. We believe in a literal thousand-year rule of Christ on the earth. But there are many, many Christians who don't believe in a literal kingdom upon the earth. They believe that, that the kingdom is now, and it's a spiritual kingdom. They've allegorized these prophecies so that uh, the kingdom is, is a heavenly kingdom or a spiritual kingdom. The thousand years is thousand is just one of those great round numbers that actually means just an idealized period of time. And so they have their ways of... Uh, trying to uh, redefine the literal meaning of, of these words. And so they believe we're in the kingdom now. It's a spiritual form of the kingdom, and this is called amillennialism. The, the person who coined that term uh, really blended uh, Greek and Latin. The A prefix is a Greek uh, idiosyncrasy indicating a negative like in the English we have UN. So it's a negation, and but um, but that's a Greek that's a Greek prefix, and millenarian or milli is a Latin word. So they took a Greek prefix and joined it to a Latin word and came up with a heresy. So it's amillennialism, and then the third view that you find in history is called postmillennialism. And if you read a lot of Theologians up until about the 1970s or 80s, they would all start off a book on are there articles or whatever on postmillennialism saying, well, postmillennialism is dead. Ah, but it rose from the grave about 1980. And it is very popular today. People like R.C. Sproul, who is on the radio a lot, uh, Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, are postmillennial. And, and they are, in fact, uh, at least Hanegraaff is a preterist. Now, there's another one of those technical words that most people have to work, take some time to work their brain around. But preteris is a based on a Latin word that just means past. And the way you look at prophecy in the Scripture is you either look at it as if it's already been fulfilled or if it is being fulfilled in the present, so past, present, and then future. And the past is called preterism. The idea that all of these events that we think are in the future, Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, Revelation chapter 4 through the end of the book, these all have already occurred. They were just written in all this code language of these symbols in Revelation to hide things from the Roman authorities. But Jesus returned in 70 A.D. in clouds of judgment and brought judgment on Israel. And so we're living in the millennium now. Aren't you glad? Don't you feel good? Anybody want to pick up a cobra? So those are the basic views. And what we see here is that that's not what the Scripture says if you take it at face value. The kingdom of the world has become. The kingdom of the world has to be destroyed before the Lord establishes his kingdom. And it's referred to here as God's kingdom, the Father and the Son. And he will reign forever and ever. Now, this fits with numerous Old Testament passages. 
some of which we've studied, some we haven't. A couple of them I want to look at before we finish tonight. But Psalm 22, uh, 27 to 28 reads, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. This is an Old Testament passage that refers to the Philippians 2 passage that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's that recognition of the authority of God that happens at the end of the tribulation period. That all the nations shall worship before you for the kingdom, notice singular, the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. He will establish his rule and reign over the nations. Then we have Psalm 72 verses 8 through 11. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The river there would refer, I believe, to the river Euphrates because that's the river that was mentioned in the Abrahamic covenant, that that the land God promised to Abraham was from the river to the great sea, from the river Euphrates to the Mediterranean. And in this meditation in Psalm 72, it's focusing on his rule will be established over the whole earth. Uh, verse 9, let the nomads of the desert bow before him. That's the Bedouin, the Arabs. Let them bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. That's just not politically correct. That's almost as bad as saying that we want someone who's an elected official to fail. But I di- digress. Uh, verse 10, let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. Now, Tarshish was a term that was used to describe the area we know as Spain, the Iberian Peninsula. It was thought of as the ends of the earth because after you sailed out past the pillars of Hercules, you weren't sure where you were going unless you had Phoenician maps to guide you. The kings of Tarshish and the islands, the islands would be uh, Greece, and this became an idiom for just all of those areas out to the west, which we would identify as Western Europe. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba. Now, Sheba and Seba are located down in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula today, down in the uh, uh, areas dominated by the Arabs and the Muslims. So there is going to be the entire world here is going to be bringing presents to God and let all kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. So there's this clear recognition in the Old Testament that God's plan was to establish a future kingdom. Now that becomes more crystallized as you go through the Old Testament. Isaiah 9-7 is a well-known messianic prophecy, usually uh, quoted at the um, usually quoted at, at Christmas time, referring to Jesus Christ, to the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, singular, uh, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Notice the length of the kingdom. It is forever. It's not just a thousand years. Now, that initial thousand years, I believe, of the millennial kingdom is phase one. It ends with the great white throne judgment, 
and the destruction of the present heavens and earth and then the creation of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem will be there and continue. So we have this, the, the millennial kingdom, what we think of as a thousand years is just stage one, sort of the preface to the eternal uh, kingdom and the eternal reign of God. Now, Daniel 2 is where it starts to get interesting, and so I want you to turn with me. Just hold your place there in Revelation. I want you to turn with me to uh, Daniel chapter 2. And in this uh, verse that I'm going to show you in Daniel 2, uh, 44, this is where we get to a, an interpretation of this vision that Nebuchadnezzar has seen. Nebuchadnezzar is the Gentile king, the ruler of the Neo-Chaldean Empire, and he is the one who has had this dream, and he was a rather crafty, uh, cagey sort of ruler. He knew that his cabinet members were just a bunch of yes-men, and they would all tell him what he wanted to hear, and that if he asked them to interpret the dream and told them what the dream was, that they would... Uh, they would all make up something that might sound pretty good. So he felt like it would be a real test of their ability to interpret the dream if they could tell him what the dream was without any hints. And so he gives them a double test. And that test is they have to not only interpret the dream, but they have to uh, tell him what it is. And if they are not able to, then they will suffer a horrible horrible death. And so Daniel, as one of the, those who's in training for one of these administrative positions, uh, hears about this, and he goes to um, Ariok, who's sort of the chief of staff for uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and he is going to, he has prayed to God, and God has revealed uh, the meaning of this dream to him. And so the dream involves this enormous uh, statue, and this statue represents the flow of history, the kingdoms of man, and there's the head of gold, which represents Babylon, and then there's the upper torso of silver, which represents uh, the empire of of uh, the media uh, Persians, and then the uh, torso, which represents the Greeks, and then the lower legs of iron, which represents Rome. And then after Nebuchadnezzar has seen this statue that represents the flow of scripture, and da- I mean the flow of history, and da- uh, Daniel has identified that, he says at the end, in verse 44, and in the days of these kings, which indicates that this, there's, there's a flow here that even though we look at history and we say, well, the, the, the Babylonians were replaced by the Greeks, there's still a flow. There's still cultural uh, antagonism to God that, and technology and knowledge that's passed on from human kingdom to human kingdom. And so this kingdom is seen as one. It's united because it's man's attempt to establish his kingdom on earth apart, uh, apart from and in hostility to God. We're told in the days of these kings, so they are still ruling, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Lost an S there 
which shall never be destroyed. It's eternal. So God is going to destroy that, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms. And what takes place in the vision is described in the next verse, which I don't have a slide of, and as much as you saw that the stone there in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar sees this stone that is cut without hands, cut out of a mountain, and that it uh, is thrown against this statue representing the kingdoms of man, and it breaks in pieces. And so in verse 45 we read, In as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. And what will take place is that the kingdom of God will destroy the kingdom of, of man. That is exactly what we see in Revelation uh, chapter 11 verse, uh, thir- verse 14. We see it again in Daniel chapter 7. Now in Daniel 7... The kingdoms of man are represented as beasts. In chapter two, Daniel 2, when it's represented as a man, it's representing the kingdoms of man as we like to think. Oh, wasn't the Greek empire incredible? Just look at what they did. Look at what the Greek philosophers accomplished. Look at the Roman empire. Isn't it magnificent to study Roman history and, and Roman law and Roman the Roman military? And we love to look at these these kingdoms historically and to elevate them and their importance. But what God looks at them from his perspective in Daniel 7, and they're represented as voracious wild beasts that are, are tyrannous and are, are gobbling up people and they abuse them in all of their uh, violence and all of their horror. And at the end of Daniel chapter 7, at the interpretation, we see that there is one who comes forth who is a like the Son of Man. He comes from the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, and he is uh, the Son of Man who is given his kingdom. This is a, another depiction of the same thing we see in Revelation chapter, chapter 4 and 5 of the Lamb coming to take the scroll his right to the uh, to rule and to reign. And uh, Daniel says in verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and they brought him near before him. That's, that's Revelation 4. And then to him was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And then we go on to the next book, which is of tremendous importance for understanding uh, prophecy, and that's Zechariah. Zechariah 14, verses 9, 10, and 11, we read, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. 
And here we see one of those passages in the Old Testament that uses the word Lord in a way that incorporates the Trinity. It's not just the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is said in Revelation eleven fourteen that it is the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Sometimes we, tr- we go too far in trying to break up the Trinity, but Jesus said, I and the Father are one. There's a unity there that as something is said of the Son, it's equally true of the Father. And so this is his kingdom, even though it is the Son as the second person of the, of the, of the Trinity, who is the Son of David, who rules on David's throne, it is nevertheless the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. So here the word Lord here uh, is a term that is it probably is just a pregnant term for for the rule of God over the earth. The Lord will be king over all the earth, and that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. All the land, now here the focus shifts to the land of Israel itself. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise. There will be this tremendous earthquake at the end of the tribulation, and there's this elevation of Jerusalem. Uh, to a high plain, and it is on part of this area that the tribulation, I mean the millennial temple, uh, will be built. Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate from the Tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it. There will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And then we go to the New Testament and the announcement of Jesus' birth. He will be in Luke 1, 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So again and again we see this emphasis on a future kingdom that has a unique beginning as the Father gives it to the Son, and the Son comes and in violence destroys the kingdom of man. This has not happened yet. We're not sitting around in some sort of mystical, spiritual kingdom that, oh, yeah, is that really what happened? Jesus really returned and established his kingdom in 70 A.D.? I, I wouldn't have noticed. Uh, this isn't some spiritual amillennial kingdom. It is a kingdom that is yet a future, a kingdom that will have unique characteristics, but one that will be visible and physical, one that we can uh, see. Now, another passage that is also a backdrop to this is the passage, the tremendous Christological psalm in Psalm chapter 2. And if you're in Daniel, turn to Psalm 2, and we'll go back and forth just looking at Psalm 2 and also looking at... um, Uh, Revelation 11 a little bit. Psalm 2 is a prophetic, dare I use the word proleptic psalm, new vocabulary word for everybody. It looks forward to the end times. David is writing as if the events in Psalm 2 are happening at his time, but it's happening in the future. It is a uh, prophetic certainty. So it is happening as writing as if it's happening in the present. He says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? And what he's describing is the 
mass of humanity, the allies to the Antichrist at the end of the at the end of the tribulation period, that are seeking to establish their kingdom and in revolt against God. Verse 2 of Psalm 2, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Christ. See, there we have that same terminology, the Lord and his Christ, that's used in, in Revelation 11. And so what I keep pointing out and trying to point out as we go through our studies in Revelation is how close Revelation, um, I said Revelation 14 is Revelation 15, 11, 15, that how close the terminology is in these uh, passages in Revelation. You don't have direct quotes so much in Revelation as you have constant allusions to these Old Testament passages because Revelation is tying together all the loose ends of prophecy. So in Revelation 11:15 we read the kingdoms of this world have become uh, the kingdom uh, excuse me the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So here we have the Lord and his uh, Christ his the anointed in Psalm 2.2. And what do they say? They say, let us tear their fetters apart. They, they resist the authority of God no matter what God does, no matter how clear the evidence is, no matter what miracles he performs, the, the, the orientation of the fallen mind in rebellion against God, negative volitions, is, it doesn't matter. They're, they're set on independence from God. And so they say, let us tear their fetters, their iron chains apart, and cast away their cords from us. And then we have the tremendous picture of God laughing at them in verse 4. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Another politically correct image of God in heaven. See, God just doesn't fit this, this political correctness we have. We've become such a nation and civilization of sissies and whining people that we just can't uh, handle so much, and everybody's got to say stuff in this really nice, polite uh, manner. And uh, according to the politically correct crowd, this would be such an egregious thing. If, if a political candidate were to laugh at his opponents and deride them and scoff at them, oh, this would be, don't you think this would be one of the worst possible sins he could commit they would they would ask for his resignation in a heartbeat but see if you're a believer in the lord jesus christ and you have the truth then in the same vein we can laugh and scoff at people like those scientists we saw in um in 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 the film expelled we 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 have and it's it's not wrong because we have the truth. We understand they are, their heart is set in concrete against the Lord. So we read on in Psalm, Psalm 2, in verse 7, I will, skipping down to verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is a reference to the fact that God has decreed this already. He has said to the son, ask of me, I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance. That is what takes place during the tribulation period. 
that the nations are being given to the Son as his inheritance, as his possession. And verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. And so as we go back to Revelation chapter 11, we see that this is what is referred to here, is that he will come and uh, conquer and destroy the kingdom the kingdom of this world, and then he will reign forever and ever. And this is the phrase we have in the Greek, uh, to the ages of the ages, literally, uh, into the ages of the ages. It goes on forever. And that's what we saw in all of those Old Testament passages, not just a thousand years. It will be that, but it is a kingdom that will last on into eternity. And then we have a number of these verses, some we've already looked at, that emphasize um, the eternality of his kingdom. Now, I would get to the next verse, but there are several things I want to say about the 24 elders who are sitting before the Lord and falling on their faces and worshiping him and if and worshiping God. And if um, we start that, we will just barely, barely address it. So I'm going to go ahead and end here at the end of verse 15, and we'll come back and begin verse 16 Uh, next Tuesday night. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have this orientation to history that uh, the kingdoms of man may be mighty and powerful and they may uh, be hostile to us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, hostile to uh, you, hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ, yet nevertheless there will come a time when they will be uh, destroyed and they will be Their power will be removed, and the Lord Jesus Christ will establish his kingdom. That the kingdoms that we see today are just manifestations of the kingdom of Satan and his attempt to rule and reign in history. Father, we pray that as we see the uh, winds of change blow in our country and in uh, history today, that we might not lose heart or be discouraged, but that we might be reminded that there is a certain destiny that you are taking us towards and taking history toward, and so we can relax and have confidence, and in fact, we can sit back and and uh, rejoice as we see your will worked out in history. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.